this morning, love that's been poured out on us. You know, we've read that psalm multiple times already. I love you, Lord, my strength. The scripture says the reason we love is, of course, because he first loved us. Because when we didn't deserve it, when we weren't worthy of it, you know what you were like. I know what I was like. We know what we are like apart from Christ. And even knowing all that, the Bible says he set his love on us anyway. And he poured it out, not in small measure, but in abundance. You are the object of the love of Almighty God this morning. And I don't know if you've got anything else to be thankful for, but you ought to be thankful for that. And I'm sure that you are. And so as we go to prayer, Father, this morning, we thank you that you, in your divine wisdom, in your incredible, indescribable mercy, decided long ago, before you even spoke this universe into existence, that you were going to set your love on people like us, that you were going to you're going to look at our lives. You, you knew we'd rebel, we'd go astray, that we'd, we'd actually be born into sin and that we would embrace that identity with both hands and that you'd love us anyway. And Father, we thank you that you don't just love us in the sense of showing pity upon us, but you loved us enough to redeem us. Your word says greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what your son, the perfect man, the God-man did for us, laid down his life so that he could call us, so that you could call us friends. Father, if we didn't think about anything else this morning, I think that would be more than enough. We'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never understand the span or the height or the depth of it, but we sure are grateful for it this morning. Father, I thank you just I don't know, maybe it's just me, but Father, for the sense of joy, of gratitude, I sense among my brothers and sisters as we've gathered here today. Father, I pray that it's mixed with a sense of expectation, not that the preacher has something special to say, but but expectation that through the preaching of the word and, and singing your praise that the Spirit of God might do a work in our hearts and in our midst, beyond that even into our neighborhood, our city, our nation, and our world, because so many still need Christ. Fathers, we ask your blessing on our time together today. Father, we ask your blessing on all the places across our town and beyond where people gather in the name of Christ. Father, I think of the family just just over the road a little ways at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Father, not far from here, but meeting for the same reason, to worship Jesus Christ, to reach the community. We pray a blessing on the one who speaks there today, on those who gather for worship. Father, that Jesus would be made much of and people would be saved. We would ask the same today here. Father, now I ask for your help as we go to another challenging portion of the Minor Prophets, that, that Father, as I speak, that your Spirit will be the one who teaches, that he would, as we always ask, be the one who guides us in truth, who guards us from error, who delivers us from apathy or confusion, whatever may be in the way, and who helps us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we dig into your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we dig into your word. And when we leave in a little while, whether we're going across the street or we're going on our way, Father, may it be rejoicing. May it be refreshed, renewed, reassured in whatever way we need. Father, because not just because we came to church, but because we met with Jesus who did love us enough to lay his life down for us and take it up again. Father, it's him we seek, it's him we serve, it's him we worship, and it's in his name that we pray, as all of God's people said together like they mean it. Amen. 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 You may be seated. And as you sit down, boys and girls, you can get out for Children's Church. If you've got those five-year-olds, those up to second graders, they can head out that back door and go get into God's Word. 
in their own way as we intend to do here. If you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to take it out once again. Meet me in the Minor Prophets. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can pull one up on your phone. There's some in the back. If you see that someone next to you doesn't have a Bible and needs one, you be a servant and go get them one off the back shelf so that they can, we can, meet together this morning in the Minor Prophetic Book of Zephaniah. I want you to find your way in the Bible this morning to the book of Zephaniah, which is the latest, the next in our study, our survey, as I've described it to you, of the minor prophets. Our Bibles have 12 minor prophetic books. Begin with Hosea, they end with Malachi. I said at the beginning of this series, this is review for some, this may be new information for others. We're looking at a half dozen of them this summer. We've looked at four already. Zephaniah is the fifth. After today, then we're going to spend the remainder of my times with you over the course of the rest of the summer, really digging into the book of Malachi. That's going to be an adventure for sure. There's a whole lot going on there. And so that's where we'll be next week and in the weeks beyond that. But this morning, we're in the book of Zephaniah. And as I continue to ramble, you continue to look, because it's small and it's hidden, but you're going to find it and meet me there, and then we're going to look at it together. And as you're making your way there, getting settled, arranged, whatever the case may be, let me begin this morning by sharing with you, you know, one of the most unusual and therefore, by definition, one of the most memorable sermons I've ever heard in my life was back in college when I was a Bible college student, and one Sunday morning... My friends and I got up, we went to church, sat down, and realized we were informed that we had a guest speaker in church that morning. I'd never heard of him before, don't remember who he was, what his name was, don't remember his face to this day, but I remember that morning. Because on that particular morning, as we sat down and the time in the service came for the sermon, he stepped to the pulpit, and he invited us, as I just invited you, to turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament minor prophetic book of Zephaniah. And then, as I will do shortly, he invited us to follow along in our Bibles as he began to read. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, and he began to read, and read, and read, and read, all the way through chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2. All the way, without a break, through chapter 3. There are three chapters in Zephaniah. He read them all from start to finish, and then he closed in prayer. We sang a hymn and went home. And I remember, it was 30 years ago, but I remember well that there were two thoughts as I walked out of the sanctuary that day that I've remembered ever since running through my mind. Uh, Number one, thought number one was this. That was the easiest week of sermon prep ever. Ever. And the second thought, only slightly more serious but equally as cynical, was I still, after all of that, have no idea what the book of Zephaniah is about and certainly had no idea what in the world I was supposed to do with it. The reason I share that with you and the funny thing about it is that today I'm going to kind of sort of attempt much the same thing because this morning in our time together in God's Word, we are going, my aim, my plan, my notes cover all three chapters of Zephaniah. So we're going to seek to look in a sense at this entire prophetic book, all three chapters together. That's what we're going to aim to do. But I want you to know as we begin that as we do so, as we get into the book of Zephaniah, I am going to seek 
seek to avoid some of the mistakes I believe were made that morning long ago. Now, I can't promise you it's going to be a great sermon, all right? Uh, I can't promise you, as opposed to that one, it will be a sermon. We're actually going to talk about it. I can't promise you it'll be great. I can't promise you I'm going to answer every question. I'm only going to assure you that, as always, I will give it my best shot because, because despite its relative brevity, it's not a long book. And despite Zephaniah's, and maybe if you've read ahead or read it before you know this, it's admittedly mysterious contents, what I want to assure you of as we begin this morning that the book of Zephaniah has a unique and in fact a significant, very significant place in our Bibles. Now, as with the other minor prophets we've looked at before, his general theme, his primary theme is the same as what we've seen in the past in the previous four. It's a theme of God's justice. It's the fact that God is just. He deals justly. Part of his justice is a judgment upon sin. But the primary theme is one of God's justice. Yet as one scholar says about Zephaniah, he says in that theme, amidst that theme of God's justice, his quote, the way he phrases it is, quote, no hotter book lies than the whole Old Testament. That is to say, when he talks about judgment, man, it's a zinger that Zephaniah brings to our attention. And another scholar terms Zephaniah the most painful book in the whole Bible because of its contents, because of its message, because of what God had to say, the message to deliver to his people. And I agree, both those things are probably true. Probably the hottest book in the whole Old Testament, probably the most painful in terms of contents. Lamentations might be right up there as well, simply by its name, but one of the most painful books in the whole Bible. But even so, what I want to show you, what I hope to show you by the time we're done this morning, is that even though both of those things are true, Zephaniah is also a message of incredible hope. This is a story of great and enduring hope. And if I get one thing across to you and to me today, that is what my prayer is. It will be. And to that end, in order to get there, there are four things I want to draw your attention to in Zephaniah this morning. Four things I want you to see as we dig in to the story and the message of Zephaniah. The first one is this. We're going to begin the same way we've begun with each of the prior minor prophets we've looked at by simply, number one, sharing with you a little bit about what I call Zephaniah's curious story. The curious story of the prophet Zephaniah, which begins, if you'll look at your Bible now, in chapter 1, verse 1, this is what the Word of God says. He writes, the word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, I promise we're not going to look at all 53 of Zephaniah's verses in the detail. We're about to look at this one, but this one's important. In fact, just so you know where we're going, I intend to, over the next several minutes, summarize as best I'm able the first two and a half chapters of the book. We're not going to read a whole lot out of the first two and a half. I'm going to tell you enough to know what's there so that we can get to what I really want to get to at the end of chapter three, but we need to look at this first closely because there's some curiosities, there's some important details here. Because this introduction contains more than meets the eye. Because for one thing, in verse 1, Zephaniah gives us more biographical information. He tells us more about himself than any of the other 11 minor prophets, at least in terms of his life and his family. Because when it says, look at verse 1 again, that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, it doesn't mean he had four dads, okay? 
Doesn't mean he doesn't know who his father was. What he's giving us there, of course, is a genealogy. He's tracing his family line back, and he takes it back four generations to Israel's king, the great reformer Hezekiah. He's the great-great-grandson of one of Israel's very few good, faithful, godly kings. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a good king in most ways. And so he's the great-great-grandson of a spiritual reformer, which by implication would suggest to us that he was also, at the very least, a distant relative, probably a cousin of some sort, to his own king, King Josiah. It says he ministered in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon. Josiah was another of Israel's great reformers. Josiah's story is a great story. We're not going to tell it today, but but, but Zephaniah lived and ministered and was related to this man, which, which suggests it's possible that Zephaniah himself wasn't a prophet who ministered and spoke from the outside, but that he may have actually served and occupied a place in the royal court. He was a man of influence, probably a man of affluence, of wealth perhaps, or significance as well. He's the great-great-grandson of a reformer. He's the distant cousin and, 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 and some sort of spiritual sidekick to another great reformer. Thirdly, while he ministered shortly before Habakkuk, the prophet that we looked at last week, he and Habakkuk both, they were probably contemporaries. They probably knew each other, at least knew of each other. They lived at the same time in the land of Israel, and they prophesied about the same thing. Habakkuk and Zephaniah both talked about the same great work. God was about to do a work of judgment. We talked about it last Sunday, the Babylonian invasion. He was called to warn God's people what was coming their way in the not-so-distant future. But here's one of the really interesting things about Zephaniah, all of that being said as well, which is that he did his prophetic thing. Like I said, he was slightly before Habakkuk, and, and he did his prophetic thing. He carried out his prophetic ministry either, we believe, immediately before, immediately after, or perhaps even right smack in the middle of a revival. Josiah, I said a moment ago, led a great revival in the land of Israel. And, and we believe that Zephaniah gave the message he gave right before, right after, or right in the middle of it. We're going to peg the revival itself was in 621 B.C. And so Zephaniah ministered in a context where revival of God's people was not an unknown thing. However, in the midst of that revival, or on the cusp or the heels of it as the case may be, he was called to bring a very sober and difficult message, and that message was this, it ain't going to last. It's not going to last. The revival will be real. It'll be authentic. People will get saved, right? People will return to the Lord. But it's not going to last. Soon the people would forsake God again. And that prompts everything that follows, beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through the middle of chapter 3. And that takes us to the second thing I want you to see this morning. With that much by way of introduction, the sort of curious, mysterious, interesting, I think, story of Zephaniah, the first thing he was called to speak, really his prophecy comes in two parts. The first part of it begins in chapter 1, verse 2. It goes into the first few verses of chapter 2 up to verse 3. And it is that in that section, the first thing he's called to do is to deliver a devastating indictment on Israel. That's the second thing I want you to see here this morning, that, that Zephaniah was called to issue, to give Israel's devastating indictment. Grab your Bible, follow along. I'm going to read just a sample of it beginning in chapter 1, verse 2. Here's the message God called him to bring. 
I will completely, verse 2, remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will, we would say, so I will also stretch out my hand against Judah. That's Israel, God's people. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal, an idol they worshipped from this place, and the names of his idolatrous priests along with the priests. Simply put, here's what God's announcing through Zephaniah, that though they were his people, they were still his chosen people. They were still the people of his own possession, the people through whom one day Messiah would come. They had, or they were once again going to turn to idols. God knew it was coming. He was warning them it was coming. And what he's also warning them is because you're going to do it again, because I keep bringing you back and you keep turning back, you're going to be judged. And you're going to be severely judged. Harshly, we might even say. In fact, if you were to, we aren't going to do this now line by line, but if you want a little bit of fun homework, go home today and look at verses 2 and 3, because really what Zephaniah does in verses 2 and 3, or God does through Zephaniah, is he, he says he, he did what he's describing there in poetic fashion is a complete reversal of the creation story. We know the story of creation. God spoke, said, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. And all these things came into existence. If you read those verses, God essentially says, a day is coming when I'm going to undo it all. I'm going to unravel creation. And then eight times through the rest of chapter 1, Zephaniah references what God is about to do, both in the short term and then in the ultimate, and we'll talk more about that shortly. He makes reference to the day of the Lord. He says, it will be a day of the Lord. Now, we've talked about the day of the Lord a lot in the Minor Prophets. Simply put, the day of the Lord is, is any time. There's an ultimate one, but it's any time God chooses to intervene in a, in a justice kind of way, to deal with sin, to deal with problems, to bring people to himself, or to deal with those who won't repent. But Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord more than any other prophet, minor or major, in the whole Bible. Directly or indirectly, he comes back to it again and again and again. And the reason he does so, the reason he talks about this impending invasion that's coming Israel's way, is because he wants them to understand that though Babylon will be the instrument, God is the author. That God is actually the one behind this. The one who, what's going to happen to them eventually, it actually did happen, we've talked about in 586 B.C., Babylon came in and they conquered the land of Israel and they wiped out Jerusalem and they took anybody, most people who survived captive, back to Babylon as captives under Nebuchadnezzar. That's it, I want you to know that's my doing. Because what I have tolerated, I will tolerate no longer violence, injustice, immorality, all of it, deception, it all God said had to go. And if we boil it all down, if we really distill all of chapter 1 of Zephaniah down to a single basic point, I want you to think about this and chew on this as I've been trying to do for the past several days as well. Israel's fundamental problem was this, and the reason we need to know it is so that we can guard against it. They wanted to claim God's name without embracing God's commandments. It's because they wanted to claim God's name. We want to be God's chosen people because, hey, that means, you know, we're kind of his special kids, and, and there are good things that come with that, and, 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 and it feels good to say we're the chosen people, and we want that identity, and we want the promises, but, but we don't want the, the commandments to put it in a more maybe a more earthy, sort of accessible way. 
They wanted the blessings of sonship without the hassle of holiness. They wanted the blessings that come with a relationship with God, but please don't burden me or hassle me by telling me it means I have to do this and I shouldn't do that. I should live this way and I should not live that one. And you know what? A lot of times that's what I want too. I bet you do as well. I want the blessings of sonship, daughtership. God, protect me and bless me and be with me and take care of me and give me and provide me, but don't, don't ask me to do that. Don't tell me to, to clean up this, to repent of that, to deal with this, to, to work out that. And, and while if you were to go into, and again, I'm sorry, we don't have time to look at all of this, but there's a destination we're headed toward. But if you were to look at the first three verses of chapter 2, which are the conclusion to the indictment against Israel, if you look at those verses, you would see that as always, God did provide a way out. It's the same way out he always provides. Hey, if you'll repent, if you'll gather yourselves together and repent, it, I, I might change my mind. I might do this differently. You can be spared. You can be saved. The fact of the matter is what, what Zephaniah makes clear is that on this particular occasion, they were going to be just too far gone. And really what we need to understand about God's devastating indictment is it was already sealed. It was already signed. The revival was glorious. Take nothing away from it. But this is the way of the human heart. Without continuous revival, without continuous repentance, without continuous confession and devotion, we'll go right back. People of God will go back to, to what they know. So the first thing we see in the story is this just curious story, this unique position, Zephaniah prophesying to the people from the inside amidst revival. He prophesies, secondly, a devastating indictment. But what we find out as we continue on through the story, the prophecy of Zephaniah doesn't stop there, that after delivering, secondly, this indictment against Israel, the, the third thing I want you to see, the latter part of his prophecy, is then he widens the lens, he widens the scope to speak of, here's the third thing this morning, the nation's inevitable doom. The inevitable doom of all the nations in his day and ultimately to the last day. Because from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter, chapter 3, verse 8, it's really where Zephaniah turns his prophetic guns. goes away from a narrow focus on Israel to a wider one on the wicked nations, the enemy nations that surrounded them. And and had oppressed them time and again. And again, without reading it straight through, I want to just give you the theme. And again, I'm doing this because we're going somewhere with all of this, so hang with me, all right? We are going to actually read some text here in a moment. But, but without reading it straight through, what I can tell you is there's a theme that's woven from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 8. And it is a message, yes, for the nations that oppressed and, and, and surrounded Israel in his day, but really it's a it's a message to every nation, everywhere, at every point in history, and every person who's willing to pay attention. And it's a theme expressed via two distinct and interrelated terms. I'm going to put them on the screen because I want you to remember them, what they are. The first one is this, pride. Everybody say pride. pride. The second one is desolation. Everybody say desolation. desolation. 
Pride and desolation are the theme, the message of the latter part of Zephaniah's prophecy. Because after what he does in the first several verses of this section, he, he lists out, he spells out 10 distinct kingdoms by name. 10 different kingdoms and, and nations are, are, are singled out as objects of God's judgment. If you were to look at a map and plot them, it's very interesting. He goes to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. There's a picture there that this involves and includes everybody. And after listing out these kingdoms by name, God announced their inevitable doom by declaring the following. Look at chapter 2, verse 10, just for a sample. This they will have in return for their what? Pride. Because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them. For he will starve all the gods, the idols of this earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a what? A desolation, okay? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. We've talked a lot about Nineveh. And he'll make them parched like the wilderness, Verse 15, he says more about Nineveh, but it could certainly be expanded to any proud, arrogant people or city. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there's no one besides me. If that's not pride, what is? And he says, how she has become a, there it is again, our second word, a desolation, a resting place for beasts. And everyone who passes by her will hiss. And wave his hand in contempt, continues right on the beginning of chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. Again, speaking probably primarily to, to Nineveh, but, but included all others, and including, I think, Jerusalem. She heeded no voice. It's written as past tense, but it's still prophetic. She heeds no voice, accepts no instructions. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Again, that is our first word. That is a message, a declaration of pride. And it goes on from there down to verse 6 when God says about such people, such nations, I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I make their streets desolate. With no one passing by, the cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. God was pronouncing judgment on the nations. He said, you're proud. And because of your pride, pride always makes desolate. Now, let's make sure we understand what, what Zephaniah means when he talks about pride. Because there's pride in the sense of, you know, being proud of your kid, right? Being proud of a job well done. It's, it's a word we use, it's probably the best word we have to describe a, a certain kind of, of gladness and joy. Uh, to feel joy over something in, in a spirit of humility. Really, that kind of pride, it, it says, look at you, look at her, look at him, look at them. How cool is that? that that's an okay kind of, can we agree, that's an okay kind of pride. I mean, you know, your, your kid plays a good game, does a good concert, sings a great song, just proud of them. Nothing wrong with that. It's selfless and it's humble. But of course, that's not what Zephaniah is talking about here. The kind of pride Zephaniah is speaking of is a pride that doesn't say, look at you. It says, look at me. Pay attention to me. Be impressed with me because I'm something and I'm somebody and, and you need to honor it and you need to respect it. It's pride that prompts defiance. It's pride that leads to 
Indulgence, it's pride that leads to independence and arrogance. It's the kind of pride that deceives us into or flows from the deception that I can live life as it was meant to be lived apart from God and, frankly, anybody else who might want to tell me what to do. That's the kind of pride Zephaniah is talking about here, that we can live life as we were meant to apart from Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, and think about it, you know it's true, because if you've tasted a little bit of pride, I bet it's where it led you. It always eventually leads to desolation, to emptiness, to dryness, to a loss of hope, to destruction. Again, look at me. And, and what God's saying is it's a path to inevitable doom. And he said, all you nations people who refuse me. This is where you're headed apart from me. This is where it leads. And, and as a prophecy, it's also a warning. And, and, and even with just that much said about it, you can dig into it more if you want to, but, but I hope, I, I would imagine, you're beginning to see why, why we're told this is the most maybe painful book in the whole Bible, the most sorrowful word of, of judgment and prophecy that you can find almost anywhere in Scripture. That's what it is. You know what the good news is this morning? Do you want some good news? Who wants good news? All right, about half of you want good news. The rest of you suck it up and hang in there with us, all right? (laughs) Here's the good news. That is what it is, but that's not all it is. That's not all it is. And in fact, against the backdrop of two and a half chapters of absolute darkness, there is this brilliant diamond at the end of chapter three. Shines more brightly because of the backdrop it's set against And it takes us to the fourth and the final and that every bit as much as true portion of his prophecy as the first three things we've looked at. We've seen his curious story, the devastating indictment, the inevitable doom. Fourth and finally, let's take a look together at God's inconceivable goodness. It leads us to the inconceivable, inexpressible, undefinable goodness of God You know, there's an old saying that goes around churches. You've probably said it. I know you've heard it. I've probably said it too. And that saying is this, that when the chips are down and you've got a friend and they're having a hard time, things aren't going well. Hey, but remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. (laughs) Heard this before, right? All right, the line for those who know otherwise starts right here, okay? Because it ain't true. It's simply not true. And I'm sorry if you've said it and you believe it and it offended you and it's hanging on a wall somewhere in your house. It's just not true. It's true in my life every single day. God always gives me more than I can handle. He always gives you things you can't figure out. He always introduces mysteries into our lives, riddles we can't solve, projects we can't complete. God is always going to give you more than you can handle. But you know what is true? That saying is not true. God will never give you more than you can handle. Not true. You know what is true, and you can take this one to the bank, and there's all kinds of Bible to back it up, and it is this. He never does anything in your life without a reason. He never permits anything, allows anything, orchestrates anything. Even the conviction of sin without a reason. He always has a purpose. He always has a plan, even when it comes to disciplining his children. What I want you to know, what I really want all of us, myself included, to take home today is that even as the most painful book in the Bible, Zephaniah is no exception to revealing that message, that truth, 
to us. Because in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, if you're not there yet, meet me there. Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. God, through the prophet, spells out at least three reasons why. First of all, he brings discipline for sin into our lives when we go astray as his people, as Israel had done. And this is where we take what happened several thousand years ago and apply it to our lives today. Because you sin and go astray, and so do I. Well, why does God discipline us? And why is sometimes his discipline painful? And, and I think, if you're not at that place today, that everything I'm about to say could equally, uh, just every bit as much, be expanded out. The, the, the lens could be widened, the scope could be broadened to say any kind of adversity. Anytime there's adversity, God, as I just said, brings it into your life for a reason. He has a purpose for it. It may not be the result of sin. It may not be your fault. Tough stuff happens sometimes. So I think it applies to the, primarily the discipline of sin, because that's the theme here. But I think any sort of adversity, God's always up to something. And Zephaniah tells us three things he's always up to. When God goes to work and adversity and discipline enter our lives, number one, he does it, Zephaniah says, first of all, to cultivate within us a life and a spirit of purity. Everybody say purity. Purity. I'm going to back up actually and read verse 8 because verse 8 is really an appropriate summary of everything Zephaniah has written to this point. So if you don't want to go back and read the rest, here it is. Therefore, God says, wait for me. For the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation. All my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now, he's talking about the day of the Lord, capital D, capital of, capital, whatever, the the end, all right? To the end of time, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to judge all the nations for their sin. But everything he says here is equally applicable. He was going to do it in the moment to Israel, to these nations, okay? God does this in in a lowercase way all throughout the course of history. But he says, the day is coming when I'm going to deal with sin, And then, verse 9, here it is. For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Literally, that means in one accord, with one heart. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, remember how he singled Ethiopia out earlier for destruction? It says, from beyond there, even my worshipers, my dispersed ones, they will bring my offerings By implication, they'll bring sacrifices of worship and praise to me. Now, what I want you to zero in on in verses 9 and 10 are that reference that that he makes to purified lips. I will give the people, and I know some translations render it differently. Literally, it's purified lips. And and what that means is God says, a day's coming. What he doesn't mean is a day's coming when he's simply going to sort of wash their mouths out with spiritual soap. I'm going to make sure they don't say bad words anymore, right? I'm going to make sure that they... They don't gossip anymore. That's included, but that's just the beginning. Because in the original language, if people were paying attention and they knew their Bibles, when they saw that, I'll give my people a purified lip, purified lips. In their mind's eye, Zephaniah wanted them to go back to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. Because in the Tower of Babel, some of you know the story, others of you don't. Here's the real quick sketch of the Tower of Babel. The Bible says that up until that point, It literally says in Genesis 11, all the peoples of the earth had one lip. That's literally, lip, one language. They all spoke the same language, which of course cultivates community and relationship. And we can all understand each other, at least verbally speaking. All the peoples of the earth had one lip, but that one lip got them in trouble. 
because they, they got arrogant and they got proud and they said, you know what? We got something going on and we're going to build a tower to the heavens and, and it's going to show everybody to look at us because of how great we are. Pride. God said, oh, no, you're not. And the way he undid it, it says in Genesis 11, is he scrambled the languages of the people. They no longer had one lip. And the world's been a mess ever since. Couldn't communicate. Scattered the nations, scattered the people to form various nations. It was all undone. God unraveled it because they were spiritually independent. But what's God saying here? He says one of the reasons he's going to purify the world of sin is so that we can all once again, when it's all finished, the curse of Babel will be reversed so that all who know Christ can worship him together with purified lips. One line. And that, again, that means more than just, hey, we all sing in tune, right? <laughs> we, can all, we can all carry the song together. What it really speaks of is intimacy, a purity that leads to intimacy. Because if we all have one language and one heart and one spirit and one lip, we can worship shoulder to shoulder. That means the people here you don't get along with, you'll get along with. It means there will no longer be distance between you in your relationship with the Lord. In one accord, as we were created to do, God says, I'm going to purify people. Why? So they can be who they were created to be to begin with. Worshippers and family. Purity, number one. Second. Second thing Zephaniah says God does. The second reason he brings discipline for sin into our lives and by extension permits adversity as well is to cultivate in us not only an attitude or a life of purity, but a spirit of, secondly, humility. Second thing is humility. Do you know why we lie as, as human beings? There's lots of reasons in the moment, but the reason that we lie, or at least are tempted to do so, and, and if you say you don't, well, you're lying because you do, and I do as well. <laughs> the reason we lie is because we're proud. And the reason we're proud, and I'm not some amateur psychologist, I just think this is the way it is, is because we're insecure. I lie about myself to you. I put on a mask. Why? Because I don't want you to know what I'm really like. I don't want you to know what I really think. You don't want me to know what you really think and what you did and where you went and how you feel. Because we're insecure about who we are, many of us cover it up with pride. Now, that pride can sometimes be arrogant. Sometimes it's just false humility. Oh, I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. Yeah, you are. God created you for his glory and a purpose. And because we're insecure, we get proud. And because we're proud, we lie and we put on masks that separate us from one another. And again, also distance us from God. And we do that because, again, we think if everybody knew what I was really like, what would they do? They'd leave me, they'd abandon me, they'd divorce me, they'd they want nothing to do with me. And when we put on those masks to cover up who we really are, it not only puts a wedge in our intimacy, our fellowship with God, it, it, it in a literal sense, it dismembers the body of Christ. It dismembers the local church because it cuts one man off from another, one woman off from another, one family off from another. And I think you know as well as I do, there's only one solution. There's only one thing that can fix that, and that is a miraculous, merciful work of the Holy Spirit who makes us who we, helps us understand who we truly are in Christ, what we were created for, how we matter to God. There's only one way you'll ever be able to put the mask down, and that is by yielding to the Holy Spirit. 
And, and Zephaniah says in verses 11 through 13 that that's exactly something that God not only can, but will do. Because he says, in that day, everybody say, in that day. In that day. So he's talking big picture, but it applies in the moment. In that day, you will feel no shame. How good does that sound? Feel no shame? Seriously? In that day, you will feel no shame because of all the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst then your proud, exulting ones. You'll never again be haughty on my holy mountain, but I'll leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they'll take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong, tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. It's a picture of absolute humility and dependence. That's why God wants to root the sin out of your life. It's why he wants you to repent of what you don't want to repent of. It's why God wants you to confess what you don't want to confess. It's why he wants you to reconcile what you have stubbornly refused to reconcile. And me as well. Why? Because he wants us to be a people of purified lips. He longs for us to be people of humble hearts. Why? Because it's just better. <laughs> and it's so inviting to the world that sees that stuff everywhere else all the time. So he does it. He, he permits, he orchestrates discipline and adversity to cultivate purity, number one, humility, number two, and then third and finally, and we'll wrap it all, pull it together with this, the third and final reason God wants to bring sin out into the darkness and into the light and deal with it is so that we can live in a, in a lifestyle, an attitude, a spirit of joy. It's all ultimately about the joy. Listen to verses 14 through 16. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord took away his judgments against you. His justice has been satisfied. He took away his judgments against you. He cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, how good is this, is in your midst, and you'll fear disaster no more. And in that day, it'll be said to Jerusalem, don't be afraid, O Zion. Don't let your hands fall limp in weariness, in adversity, in, in sorrow, and in shame. And I think that, that though God promises that that's all going to happen in that day, I think it can happen on this day too. It can happen on this day too, and it should happen when we grasp, when you grasp that God has dealt with your sin at the cross. He's dealt with sin, capital S, the penalties removed, the promise of eternal life is real and secure. But he also wants to deal with the little s sins in your life as well so that you can function and operate from a place of joy where you can say and know on a daily basis, verse 17, that the Lord your God is in your midst, that he is a victorious warrior, that he exalts over you with joy, that he will be quiet, literally a, an alternate translation. He will renew you, refresh you in his love, and rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Who wants to know that God rejoices over them with shouts of joy? Get your hands up, right? You want God to rejoice over you with shouts of joy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then as if adding his divine signature on the bottom line in verses 18 through 20, God shifts. He takes the microphone from Zephaniah, begins to speak in the first person and says this, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast, those who grieve over the fact that worship and has been corrupted and God's people are divided. They grieve over the fact that it isn't the way it should be. They came from you, O Zion, and the reproach of exile is a burden on them. Well, behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown. 
ground and all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. There it is. He signs his name. In other words, in other words, once we take the whole picture into view, we discover God was going to judge Israel in the moment. He's going to judge the nations in the future. And he does what he must to cleanse me from sin and you from sin in the present. He does these things, harsh and difficult as it may be, he does these things for goodness sake. He does these things not because he's bad, but because he is good. He does them for goodness sake because he wants to move you and me and us to joyful, humble, unified, purified maturity in Christ. That's what it's all about. Last Tuesday morning, I was praying with some of my friends in the 6-4 Fellowship, that ministry I've shared with you so much about that has done so much to help me grow in prayer Every Tuesday morning from 9 to 9.30, 12, 15 of us from all over the country, we have a video conference. We just, we do what we do at Fresh Encounter. We do what we do here on Tuesday at noon. We open up the Bible, read some scripture, and we pray. On Tuesday morning, we were, this past Tuesday morning, we were praying together. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when we pray together, we have a time of confession. And as we're all sort of praying with each other on the screen, in our time of confession, we were, we were prompted, we were challenged to confess, to acknowledge the lies that we believe as followers of Jesus. Satan, the Bible says, is a liar. He's the master deceiver, and he lies to you all the time about the way things are, the way you are, whatever. And the specific prayer prompt, the handle we were grabbing onto was this, Lord, this morning I renounced the lie, that. And, and guys, we're confessing some heavy stuff. I mean, we're good friends, we love and trust each other, but some heavy stuff, including me, has laying burdens before the Lord. And then one of my friends, none of you know him, he lives out in the Pacific Northwest, great godly guy. He began to pray, and, and, and he, he began with that line, Lord, I, I renounced the lie this morning, that. And while he kept going, as soon as he said what he said next, I had to stop and write it down because I thought, I want to get there someday too. Because it was serious. And he said, Lord, this morning I renounced the lie that trials aren't good for me. That adversity isn't good for me. That's what I believe. I think adversity isn't good for me. I think goodness is good for me, right? And that's what you think too. He said, I renounce the lie that trials aren't good for me because they are. Because God uses trials, whether it's a trial of the conviction of sin, it's a trial of a, of a challenging relationship, it's the trial of just life is hard right now. What do we want to believe? that God's mad at me, that he doesn't like me. He's got this great big wooden spoon. He's ready to spank me, and, and he enjoys it. And he said, I renounce that lie that trials aren't good for me because they are. And I'm like, wow, I want to be Bill when I grow up. That was his name, you know, because he was right. Because based on what we've seen this morning, that I think is Zephaniah's point, that God wisely mercifully uses discipline, corrective discipline for sin or, 
or, or forward-looking discipline for maturity, as well as every other form of trial, adversity, or challenge for our good. And I believe eventually if we'll stick with him, he brings us to places where we can see it, where we can see why he's up. We may not the whole picture, and if you don't get it here, you will get it there when we're home. But he brings us to places where we can see it. And that's why the big idea of this morning's message is that all of God's designs are meant to draw us nearer to Jesus. All of his designs are meant to draw you nearer to Jesus. Whatever it is, nearer to Jesus. And here in Zephaniah, we are assured that what will be ultimate on that day is available now in the moment if we'll repent or relent and come with an open heart to him and say, Lord, have your way with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Zephaniah. I thank you that you prompted this man of royal blood, of position and power. You gave him the courage, Lord, to speak a hard message, but a good message on on your behalf, a message that I needed to hear. Father, I didn't even understand the book of Zephaniah a week ago. And, And now I see in it, Lord, that that you're always at work, that you always have a plan, you always have a purpose, and it's always for the good. Father, some of us are carrying heavy loads today. Some of them, those loads, the label on them is sin. Some of those loads, the label is sorrow, hardship, trial, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Father, we want to stand before you right now. Let's just stand together as we close in prayer, and we're going to worship in a moment. Fathers, we take a moment to stand together before you. Father, I want to just give my brothers and sisters the opportunity. Certainly, they can come pray after the service with us down here if they desire prayer, Lord. But even right now, Father, before the moment slips away, before we head across the street, say, Lord, here's my thing. Here's what it is. Here's the thing of which I repent. Here's the thing of which I let go. Here's the thing of which I'm going to accept is from your hand. And believe that you love me, even though today it doesn't feel like it. Father, right now, we bring you our stuff. We bring it to you. Just take a moment. Unburden your heart before him. Give to him what you need to give to him.